This is Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. I'm Alan Strickland. Clay Hess is with us today. He was with Ricky Skaggs for years and now leads the Clay Hess Band. He's in a brand new studio right now and begins a recording project tomorrow morning. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I've heard rumors and stories about you getting your first phone call from Ricky Skaggs and you thought it was a joke and there was some inappropriate nudity. Tell me about that. I was working construction at the time. I hadn't really played guitar for about six months. I had heard through the grapevine that Brian Sutton was quitting Ricky Skaggs. I hadn't thought much about it, and I came home from work. Walk in the house, and the phone was ringing. I pick up the phone, talk to whoever that was. I'm not even sure who it was. Probably my mom. On the way to the bathroom to take a shower, I lay the phone on the vanity, step on the shower, Turn the water on, stand there getting the water the right temperature. The phone rings. And I was like, whoever it was must have forgotten to tell me something. So I step out, answer the phone. Hello? And the voice on the other end says, Clay? And I said, yeah. And he goes, this is Ricky Skaggs. How are you doing? My family are all big practical jokers. And Ricky and I are from roughly the same area, probably about 80 miles as the crow flies. So the accents are fairly similar. And... uh I said, yeah, right. And he said, uh, huh? Are you busy? And I said, no, I'm naked. Because <laughs> you, you know, when you think you're getting pranked, you want to flip it and make the other person feel as awkward as possible. You want to be the antagonist. Right. And he said, what? And I said, I just stepped in the shower. And he said, do you need some time to dry off? And still thinking that it was a prank, I said, don't bother me if it don't bother you. So he just, he said, uh, is there any way that you could make a recording for me? This was on a Tuesday and overnight it to me tomorrow. And I was thinking, holy crap, this is Ricky Skaggs. And I've just blown any opportunity to play for him in the first, you know, three seconds. Sometimes lowering the bar from the very beginning is not a bad thing. Well, apparently. So I said, sure, I can do that. I overnighted it to him on uh, Wednesday. And he called me Thursday, said, I like what I'm hearing. Can you play the Grand Ole Opry tomorrow night? And I was like, uh, yeah. And where were you living at the time? In Athens, Ohio. Looking back, on Tuesday at 4 o'clock, I had no prospect of playing any music. You were getting a shower after yeah. working construction. And then on Friday at 7 o'clock, I was playing the Grand Ole Opry. I had no idea that it was going to happen on Tuesday. That's pretty surreal. Standing on the stage looking around like, is this happening? Yeah. So I meet them backstage. He's like, he walks in, opens his mandolin case. Everybody else is there. He's like, pick in a pin, kick it, Jimmy. He's like 195 beats a minute. Bam. So we play this thing. I play my guitar solo. You know, I don't know any of these guys. And uh, You haven't even had formal introductions? No. Don't even know their name? Oh, I knew their names just because I knew the who they were from seeing them in other bands and stuff, but Bobby Hicks, the legend fiddle player, is standing to my left. So I played my guitar solo, and I played okay. You know, I look over at Bobby, and Bobby under, just mouths F you to me. Really? Yeah. And I look at him, and I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't going to take that, so I just looked at him, glared at him, and he threw his head back and started laughing. You know, so that was his test to me to see how I'd take that. And then we were buddies from that moment on. So 
So no rehearsal, no charts, just do this right now standing in a hallway. Yep. So we we played, uh, I think, like six or seven songs in the cage back there, and then we walked out on stage, and we played Pig in a Pen and Little Maggie. Pig in a Pen was roughly 200 beats a minute. Little Maggie is about 170, probably 165, 170. And then we came back at the end of the spot, 30-minute spot, and there was time left over, so we played Rawhide, which is like 210 beats a minute. So we're walking off stage, and I was like, wow, that was a test. And he said, if you were going to fall on your face, it would have been right there, right then. And I said, thanks for giving me that opportunity to completely tank in front of everybody listening on radio. But I made it through, and then uh, just played the Opry with him until this was first weekend in January. Didn't officially get hired until the first road date, because you don't really know somebody until you travel with them. You know, you, anybody can show up for you know, an hour at a time and be normal. So we played a date in Florida, and then on the way back, he, he hired me and Luke Bulla at the same time, who played fiddle. So a minute ago, you said you had not really been playing for six months. You were working construction. Right. So you went from sort of a six-month dry spell to the stage of the Grand Old Opry. How do you do that? I always played a lot. From the time I was 13 till I was 18, I probably played eight hours a day. I would come home from school and just go in my bedroom and play guitar until I fell asleep. So this has been in your blood from the very beginning. Yeah, my whole family plays. My mom and dad both played guitar. My grandma and grandpa on my mom's side both played guitar. Was it encouraged or expected? Neither, really. They didn't push me to play. I just I was around it all the time, and I wanted to do what they were doing. My uncle was a great singer and a great rhythm guitar player. So for listeners who might not understand, this is bluegrass we're talking about. Correct. Do you ever have a desire to be the rocker or to be the guy in the poster with the big hair? Nope, not at all. I like to be in the background as much as possible. What I want to know is when it comes to being creative and it comes to your craft of being a musician, which mm-hmm. has been since you were a child, Yep. where does that come from? A lot of places. I have to, like when I pick material... I don't just, I don't know. It's probably why we haven't been more commercially successful, but I don't don't do things just because I think they'll be successful. You know, I want to do things that mean something to me, that I can can sing this song. I'm not going to sing a song if it doesn't affect me in some way because I can't be believable as a singer if if I don't have some kind of emotional connection to what I'm singing. So the material that I look for has to, and I don't know why some of these things affect me. I don't know if I, I have to draw from... It has to come from somewhere. But material-wise, it has to be, A, affect me, and B, musical. The creativity part uh, definitely comes from... I don't want to do anything like anyone else. My mom kind of instilled that in me. She had an incredible ear, was a great singer. When I was learning to play guitar... I was learning from these Tony Rice records. So put the needle on there and hold your thumb on the side of the 33 LP. Slow it down as much as you could where it was still somewhat understandable. And try to learn it. And the best thing that she ever did for me, because she was listening through the wall. You know, I'm in there learning this thing. And I would come out and I would play it for her. And she wouldn't say, you missed this note right here. She would say, nope. I'd be like, what? Where did I mess up? She's like, you have to figure that out. So it forced me to listen deep to things. 
you know, not just superficially listen. So then it caused me to listen to the rhythm behind what I was, the solo that I was trying to learn and figure out how that's affecting how the solo sounds. And that's probably why I end up getting really interested in recording, how to mix things together to make them layered like that, you know, and playing several instruments makes it really fun because I can listen to what one thing's doing and then play off of that and the same thing, you know, back and forth. So she would say one word. She just say one word. And if I got it right, she'd say, that's it. It wasn't, yay, you did it. It was like, yep, you got it. It seems like her critique was devoid of approval or of emotion. She was moving you towards a goal that had nothing to do with your self-worth. It's just, you need to work on that. Exactly. And that's a, that's a crazy good parenting skill. Oh yeah. And it's odd that you said devoid of emotion because my wife calls me emotionless a lot of times, just because nothing affects me really one way or the other. If something happens, I'm like, well, that happened. Now we have to figure out how to deal with what happened. So does that mean that you could have a show that was less than stellar and you're not going to fixate on it? You just go, well, that's in the past. We move ahead. That's a real gift. Well, I don't know that it's a gift, but it keeps you from going crazy. I compartmentalize. That's probably why my personality test said I would be best suited as a judge or a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) Similar yet different. Yes. Well, they're both judging. Just one takes a little further than the other. So how old were you when you were walking out to mom and she's saying, nope, how old was that? 13, 12, 13. I started playing when I was nine, but when I started learning the, you know, the more intricate. Slowing down records with your thumb to learn the parts. That's a great visual. Yeah. But here's the thing with that to me. I don't hear feel in players from this generation like I did from the last generation because they're not playing with the records. They're learning the things digitally, a lot of them anyway, aren't learning the nuance of what that person is saying with the instrument, listening to it at full speed and trying to emulate that instead of just learning the notes and playing the notes. Mechanical rather than emotional? Yep. The only place I'm emotional is with music. I heard a a cut by Merle Haggard the other day that I'd somehow never heard in my life. And it might be the best vocal performance I've ever heard by anyone. And uh, it's a Hank Williams song that he cut, Moaning the Blues. And I just happened onto it. It was even on my phone in my library of a bunch of stuff that I have. And I pulled it up and I was like, how have I never heard this? And I mean, as soon as like the first line, I had goosebumps from my wrists all the way up my neck and halfway down my back. And I just, I I listened to it like five times in a row. My wife was like, okay, we can go on to something else. So you you hear this song that's in your phone that you don't know that you have, Mm -hmm. and it causes an emotional reaction and you listen to it five times. What's that experience for you? and, And how is that different from maybe another emotion you experience with your family? Oh, I think the um, the emotional release that is for me, it's more of a reinvigoration for music. You know, you have lulls and, and then you have the high points, but like when I hear something like that, especially after this past year of not really being able to get out and, and do anything musically. And I was, to be honest with you, I was kind of getting a little, a little eh, you know, 
I worked construction a lot last year, and uh, I was just oh, so you'll still do that? Oh, I mean, I had to. It was better than starving. So, because of the pandemic, you were working construction Mm -hmm. to pay the bills. Yep. So you can go from this amazing talent you have on stage to swing in a hammer. What do you do? You frame houses. What do you do? Yeah. Well, we were doing remodels and decks, but I grew up working construction. My dad was a contractor. So from the time I was big enough to carry a two by four, I was on a job site somewhere. So that transition between the two is not that big of a stretch for you because they're both part of who you were as a kid. Yeah. I used to joke. It was like, yeah, I learned to do construction stuff when I was a kid. So I'd have something to fall forward on if my music career didn't (laughs) pan out. (laughs) So do you write much of your own music? Um, Used to write a lot more. I've just started writing a little bit again. It's hard to write when you're really happy for me. Because happiness is a distraction? No, I just don't have any angst. Well, again, my emotion comes out through music. Yeah, I don't know. I met Sam and my writing just kind of trailed off because I was doing other things, you know. I enjoyed being with her and then we had a couple of kids and they're the loves of my life. So I would rather do that than sit down and write a song. I'd rather hang out with them. So you hadn't worked for about six months and then Ricky Skaggs calls. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you've been sitting around due to the pandemic for about a year and a half. How are those similar? And I ask because, you know, we're sitting in a brand new studio and you're going to start a recording project tomorrow. What kind of energy does that lack of activity bring to a new project? I mean, are you really excited? Oh, yeah. Recording is my favorite thing. I have a studio in Ohio. So it's always strange to me when people come into a studio setting and they're freaked out. I was like, why are you scared about this? Well, I know that what I record, you know, you're going to listen back to. I was like, but you play live shows and you're fine? Well, that's not recorded. And I was like, yeah, but on that, you don't have a delete button. You know, you get to sing here until you, till it's good enough for you. There, you sing it and it's, it's there. And whether you like it or not, it's recorded somewhere. It's on, it was on Facebook before you got off stage. And it was terrible. <laughs> So so don't be scared about this. I'll delete it and it'll be good when you leave. So for you, recording is the most relaxed place you are. Oh, yeah, for sure. A lot of times you'll play something in the studio and while you're playing it, you're thinking of how to improve what you're doing at the moment. And then you'll think of something and be like, oh, that's great. Well, if you're doing that on stage, you're like, yeah, I should have done that right there. You don't get a shot at it. But in the studio, you can be like, give me those last four bars. Let me try this. Then you can maximize what you're shooting for. So for you, the studio is not a fearful place. It's actually a spot of creativity for you. Yeah, that's uh, this is my happy place. So do you have a particular record you've done that you're really proud of? I think I I probably play the best on, uh, well, my Rain CD. I put one out in 2011 called Rain. It was both good and bad. The record got rave reviews. Kyle Cantrell, this is the bad part. He told um, Lonnie Lasseter at Pinecastle, the record label I'm on now, he was like, I saw that record as genre shifting for bluegrass. And I was thinking, great, that's my first one. It's genre shifting, everything else, downhill. You're not, you're not going to get two genre shifting records. You know what I mean? You set the bar too high. Exactly. I should have put out a crap record right off the... What's like I know people who've won Grammys and it drives them crazy. They put them in a box, go, you know, what's expected of me now? How can I tell That was this? me. Yeah. I got a Grammy for playing on Skaggs' record. 
And it was in a box in the trunk of my car for a year. But it's because I'm from Appalachia. Because the Appalachian thing is, if you have success, the people around you, not necessarily true in my case, but, you know, the people I knew, not my family, oh, you're too good to play with us now. It's not, man, great for you. It's like, I'm mad because that didn't happen to me. So they're they're mad about your success instead of being happy for you. So you hid the Grammy in a box in your car. We won it in 2001, I think. 2000, maybe. Whatever year Jennifer Lopez wore the thing to the Grammys. <laughs> and uh, I never had it displayed, period, until my wife, Sam made me put it out and that was 2010 so nine years yeah it was in a box for nine years and then when you see it nine years later what do you think yeah that's pretty cool some guy come up to the door i think it was a i forget what he's selling some somebody like getting donations for the fire department he knocks on the door and uh i open the door and he's in the middle of a sentence he goes is that a grammy i was like yeah and he was like, oh, do you want to donate to the fire department? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't like, where'd you get it? That would have been my first thing. Unbelievable. So you're in the studio. you got a big project starting tomorrow. What's your goal? My goal? My goal is always to be as musical as possible. I don't, I don't care about being commercial or whatever. You know, there, there are things that I listen to that, that everybody listens to that weren't really popular when they came out 40 years ago. But people listen to them now, and that is incredible. That's that's what I'm shooting for. I want people to know me after I'm gone, not necessarily right now. Music that endures. Yeah. Good for you. Well, I know it's been a long drive for you to get here, and I appreciate your time and taking some time to uh, share this with me. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks. This is a lot of fun for me. You've been listening to Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. You can find more about Clay at his website, clayhess.com. Thanks to Dan Durlow. We appreciate him hosting us in his brand new spacious and well-equipped studio. Information about this facility at reverbandecho.com. Thanks also to Scott Liebers and Clark Slicer for their audio direction. I'm Alan Strickland. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.